0: And welcome to a special edition of the Tebby Podcast. I'm Robin Powell, and this is the official podcast of my blog, The Evidence-Based Investor, produced by Regis Media. As everyone knows by now, we're living in extraordinary times. Billions of people around the world are more or less confined to their homes as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. This is, of course, a human tragedy. Hundreds of thousands of people will lose their lives. But there are massive implications for the economy too. Most economists agree we're heading for a deep recession, which could last for a long time. As a result, stock markets have fallen around the world. Our guest on this episode is someone who understands more than just about anyone else alive today, how financial markets have responded to economic shocks like this throughout history. Professor Elroy Dimson chairs the Centre for Endowment Asset Management at Cambridge Judge Business School and is Emeritus Professor of Finance at London Business School He chairs the Policy Board and the Academic Advisory Board of FTSE Russell and is also on the board of the evidence-based investment consultancy Sparrows Capital. He's an accomplished author and is co-author of the Credit Suisse Global Investment Returns Yearbook. Professor Dimson joins us now. So Elroy, thank you very much indeed for joining us. I I take it
1: you're a Home self-isolating? I am indeed. Self-isolating and for the moment in an empty home.
0: (laughs) Right, okay. Um, You're probably most famous for the the book that you uh, co-wrote with uh, Paul Marsh and uh, Mike Staunton, uh, Triumph of the Optimists, um, which really was about the way that optimistic investors actually ended up on top in the 20th century. And if I recall in that book, you also uh, talked about what might happen in the twenty first century just just remind me what what you actually said
1: well i 've got a copy of Triumph of the Optimists uh, here in front of me, and uh, to refresh my memory, I went back to our paragraphs that concluded all of the implications for investors and i 'd like to read one out to you because. We had not looked at it for a while, and Paul Marsh and Mike Staunton and I reminded ourselves just recently uh, about how we concluded. Uh, And uh, here's the paragraph. Uh, We concluded that because business itself is risky and because the years ahead will bring new forms of disorder and volatility, Uh, Instead of, or perhaps in addition to the disruptions of the past, the new century may herald continuing international terrorism, new diseases, threats of large-scale litigation and corporate liability, environmental disasters, and new pestilences as yet beyond our expectations. The counterparts, we wrote, of the world wars and the Cold War of the 20th century may be new wars on terror. Wars on drugs, called from wars, and wars against the forces of nature. The higher the rating at which shares are bought and sold, the more volatile will be stock prices, and the more sensitive they will be to these new threats." So viruses and and, uh, plagues were on our mind as this century began.
0: Exactly. Well, well, we certainly have a, a a pestilence, a new pestilence to talk about uh, now. Um, you, you've seen a number of crashes and corrections d- during your career. Um, I mean, how does the turmoil of the last few weeks compare with the others?
1: Well, I think part of it is that, looking back, a relatively short period, the way in which it's advanced has been quite shocking. Um, And the lapse from when we first knew about this until the uh, effects of the virus were global was long enough to do more than was done in most countries, Uh, and yet things moved relatively fast. So um, uh, I I find in health terms, the outcomes are quite shocking, and yet... Uh, there are plenty of precedents in history which were pretty dreadful. And uh, we're in one of those now, and it's by no means the most dreadful in history.
0: Well, that's certainly re- reassuring to hear. Um, fears about the spread of coronavirus have clearly played a major part in, in, in recent volatility. But but there's, there's usually more than one issue involved, isn't there? And w- what other factors do you think have been at play this time?
1: Well, I think it's the uh, increased connectedness of stock markets. Um, mm-hmm. So let me give you two parallels. Each parallel cost something like 50 million lives. Um, I'm a professor at Cambridge University, as you'll remember, and my college is Gonville and Keys. Gonville and Keys came into existence in the 1300s, and within a few months of the foundation of the college, the Black Death arrived in britain a black death progressed in a plague-like way cost about 50 million lives around the world uh, and took about two years from arrival uh, in britain uh, till it moved on to uh, other countries and then You'll excuse me if I use a time scale which is rather Cambridge like. Uh, and then, somewhat m- more recently, not half a millennium, but just a century ago, we had the post World War I uh, pandemic of the influenza, which also cost about 50 million lives. 50 million lives were a uh, smaller proportion than the deaths that are estimated from the Black Death, uh, because the, the world had more people living in it then. Mm. Um, And that, again, took uh, uh, at least a period of quite a large number of months to have its impact in each region that it reached, whether we're talking about uh, the United States uh, or Britain or other Mm -hmm. locations. So uh, there have been some dreadful times before. Um, So far as we can tell, coronavirus is far from being uh, one of the most deadly viruses but it's international travel uh, and factors like that which have enabled it to spread with remarkable rapidity. And stock markets have been uh, quite correctly spooked by this.
0: Mm. You mentioned the flu epidemic that followed the First World War. Um, I suppose what's quite encouraging um, is the fact that, you know, if you'd been an investor in 1914, say, um things would have looked pretty grim when the world war started and and got pr- progressively more grim and then you had the the this, this flu which killed more people than than the war itself and then after that you had a recession and yet if you were patient and diversified the 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 20s were actually quite rewarding to 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 long-term investors
1: well i think you're right um of course, when we talk in investment terms, we're measuring things uh, in, in pounds and dollars and uh, uh, marks and so forth, uh, and that's fearfully important, but not the most important issue. So, uh, if you were dead, you were not there to spend the uh, wealth that you might otherwise have accumulated, uh, and that's been one of the issues that has influenced uh, the story uh, mm-hmm. as we've gone through financial market history. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to, to overrate the importance of investing, but there is a natural advantage that accrues to investors who have a long timescale. So, mm-hmm. going back to my example of an Oxbridge college, uh, where if you ask what's the timescale for looking after our endowment, the investment committee may say, well, it's uh, as long as I'm around or 50 years, or mm-hmm. uh, let's start at since the beginning of the college, 500 years. If those are your time scales, there are things that you can do, which you can't do if you need your money urgently. And so I think uh, you'll probably want to go back to what investors should be thinking about going forward. And the person who had their money in the stock market Because they were planning on um, a celebration, a home extension or whatever, in a few Mm -hmm. years' time, they don't have the luxury of catching up. Uh, Those whose wealth is there for the long term can benefit from what's sometimes called diversification over time, that a bad year is not necessarily followed by another bad year and another bad year so there are big differences between the experiences of different individuals and the the narrative that underlies financial market history the stories as it were um, can be very important and the impact on different sorts of inve- individuals and institutions can be very different
0: now um going back to to uh, viruses in in history i i don't know whether you saw the S&P Dow Jones indices, uh, when this whole thing started sort of mid to late uh, February, um, they produced a chart showing you know, 12 major viruses over the last 40 years. And in all but one of those cases, the S&P 500 was actually higher six months after the, the original kind of fears broke out, if you like. Um, I mean, obviously, not not all information is is useful information, but, but that's quite a telling statistic.
1: It's telling. I think it helps us to, to to convey a story, but the number of independent observations there, since they overlap, is limited. And so we've got to be a little bit cautious about that. But I think the story which it does illustrate is this, that when we're going through the good times, and the economy is prospering, and we're getting wealthier, and we project growth in cash flows and profits going forward, then the world typically looks rather safe. Uh, When it's safe, the risk premium that investors demand is smaller. And when we move from that to a position in which growth is threatened, but risks also look larger, then the prospective cash flows that we can anticipate in future years gets slimmer, may even get to be negative in real terms. Uh, And yet risks look larger. And so you have a double whammy. The economic position of the corporate sector looks worse, and the rate at which you discount future cash flows gets to be more penal, more harsh. And I think that's why you see these bounce backs. Uh, If you buy at the bottom, you are likely to perform well. But the problem is we never quite know when the bottom hit us and lots of us have been caught out by the coronavirus, Uh, in my own case, and I can't be alone. um, We saw the falls uh, and my wife and I thought, well, now's the time to stick our money into our annual ISA. (laughs) We put it in there. Uh, and congratulated ourselves on paying substantially <laughs> less than we would have done a week or two earlier. And now we've yeah. watched that all wither away. But there are others who might have been clever like me as well and turned out not to be quite so clever. <laughs> I,
0: I, I'm glad you owned up to that one, actually, and uh, uh, I'm sure you weren't the only one, mainly because uh, my, my own son, who is studying at uh, Stockholm University at the moment, said, Dad, I noticed... Um, uh, markets have been going down. You've been nagging me about getting in. Is now a good time? And I was thinking, oh well, should I tell him to wait till it all settles down? I said, all right, go on then. And of course, in the next two days, I think the markets went down another fifteen percent or something. Um, he checked yesterday, and of course, he was up. Uh, he was getting all excited, saying, uh, "Oh, shall I put 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 some more in?" And I said, it doesn't work like that. And of course, (laughs) I'm sure if you check today, it would be down again. But uh, uh, yeah, I'm I'm sure you're not the only one to have done that.
1: Yeah. One of the dilemmas of investing at a time like this is that uh, when markets are volatile, it's difficult to get what you think are the right prices. So markets typically are more volatile after there's been a major collapse. And so there you see the opportunity to get into the market. And how are you going to do it? Well, some of the people who are listening will be saying, well, partly I think for myself and partly we've got to think about perhaps an institutional investment. So let's think about it for themselves. Um, How are they going to do it? They'll do it through a mutual fund or some other vehicle. And very often the transaction will go through the next day. And by the next day, things may look very different. Uh, at volatile times, the spread between buying and selling prices widen. uh, And you're going to pay something for immediacy, because that's what the market provides. And yet, you won't have immediacy, you'll have waited a day, spreads will still be quite wide the next day. Uh, And so you'll be caught out. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other hand, you might think about institutional investors, because many people listening to this will indirectly be in institutional investors, not only going through mutual funds, but they'll have stock market exposure through their pension fund or through uh, other uh, activities. And there, when there's large investments to make, there's often some careful thought. So if markets are going down, uh, there will be a meeting of the investment committee or of the uh, Uh, weekly uh, gathering of the wise men in in an investment organisation and um, there's a delay again there. Uh, So you're not really capturing uh, transient opportunities Uh, and uh, like your son the the outcome may not be quite what you expected if you'd plunge straight into the market But, but plunging into the market also is difficult because if you're going to buy individual securities they have the largest off offers spread at a time when the market is most volatile.
0: Exactly. Um, I suppose one of the problems is that uh, because, thankfully, they're relatively few and far between these sort of large crashes or corrections, if you like, we, we kind of forget how bad they are, how sort of gut-wrenching they are. Is it just me, or or has this been more volatile than than? Previous uh, uh, downturns. I mean, you know, we've seen markets going up five or even ten percent one day, and then going down by a similar amount the next. Have have markets been more volatile this time?
1: Um, The the answer to this one is um, unfortunately it's a sort of yes and no. Um, So at one level, um, markets respond faster and faster to. Pieces of news because news travels very quickly. Mm. But on the other hand, if we ask ourselves, what do we really care about in terms of downsides in the market? What is it that would make people pay less for being invested in the stock market rather than holding on to cash? It's not vibration from one day or one week to the next. Uh, It's what might happen if you go through a protracted bad period. What happens if you go through the credit crunch, which was the beginning of the global financial crisis? What happens if you go through the tech crash, which came after the uh, great successes of the 1990s? What happens if you are at the end of the oil shock of the mid-1970s? Well, over those periods, the oil crash, the tech crash, the credit crash, uh, the world stock markets, the capitalization-weighted world index fell in real terms by about a half. And the worst countries did rather worse than the world. So um, have we seen the worst? No, we haven't had a 50% fall for most people who are invested in world stock markets, um, But uh, most people who listen to this won't be in the worst possible country. So the worst possible country in the credit crash was Ireland, because uh, that had the misfortune to be heavily exposed to banks that were crushed by the beginning of the global crisis. Um, The worst possible country to be invested in was uh, uh, at the time of the tech crash was Germany. At the Mm -hmm. time of the oil shock, before Britain had discovered oil, um, it was the UK that was the worst country to be invested in. So Mm -hmm. there has been both a history of really bad crashes, 50% of real inflation-adjusted value during these longer periods, Mm -hmm. and particular countries that have done worse still. So the the fact that some countries do markedly worse than the world uh, is... Uh, something which is in principle avoidable because we can now invest globally. We're not restricted to investing in one country. So diversification continues to pay off for somebody who can invest globally. But uh, we've not seen something which is remarkably bad. But on the other hand, this what I'm talking about here is from before a crash to after a crash. And we don't know whether we're at the end of a crash. So we may just be in in the middle of a journey, or we may be confronting buying opportunities, and we may be at the end of the crash, and there's going to be a recovery. We won't know that for a while. Mm. Uh, I
0: suppose the consolation with the downturn that followed the uh, global financial crisis was, I suppose, it was relatively short, uh, and and there was a kind of V-shaped recovery, wasn't there? And, And when stocks started to recover, they recovered really very well quite quite quickly, um other bear markets like you know the one in the seventies you mentioned are more like a kind of slow motion landslide they, they they literally can go on for years so without wanting to kind of depress people here elroy can you give us some idea as to as to how long a bear market can go on for
1: Well, you've chosen the three recent examples that I've given you. The oil shock was one where um by the end of nineteen seventy four stock prices were hugely depressed. And anybody who felt obliged to get out of the market would have felt really bad when in January and February of 75, the stock market shot ahead. And so uh, all of the losses over 73 and 74 um, were largely recovered in a matter of weeks. And so um, that, that, I think, is also true for uh, other cases. So we we, we had the uh, bull market at the end of the 1990s in growth stocks, um, which then collapsed. But um, the market did quite well over timescales, which would be acceptable to most investors, just a few years. Um, Sometimes, of course, it can take much longer. And so the Wall Street crash of the end of the 1920s was something which was followed by um, pain afterwards. But the, the crucial thing is what, when do you decide you've reached the end of that crash? And one of the takeaways, I think, on this is that uh, you don't want to be pouring money in if you don't know whether you're at the end of the crash. But taking money out can be very dangerous. You can be whiplashed by withdrawing funds from the market just when it's about to turn around. So one thing which I think people should be consoling themselves with is that if the world looks risky in investment terms, you would want to have less risk exposure. But for most people, they do have less risk exposure. That's to say if they were, for example, previously 50-50 in equities and cash, they now sadly no longer have 50% in equities. But that means their portfolio overall is less risky than it was. And if they have the same taste for risk as they used to have, then uh, they don't need to reduce their exposure to the stock market. Um, prices have done that for them. And uh, the case for just remaining invested and uh, doing one's best to take a long-term perspective will pay off in the end so uh, as you know i hate timing the market uh, i mm. do like the question of how much time in the market you give yourself mm. well the,
0: the the economy has has obviously suffered a, a huge shock and there's general consensus that we're heading into a recession and uh, you know that, that may be long and and severe um, that clearly is going to uh, impact negatively on on equity prices but you know this connection between the economy and the stock market it's not quite as simple as people often make out is it i mean the the, the stock market is not the economy
1: well the stock market doesn't uh, doesn't follow uh, economic conditions it anticipates economic conditions So if you tell me that um, there is going to be a recession at some point in the future, what I'd say to you is that does not indicate that stock market investment is going to be unattractive. Uh, What I'd say to you is the stock market has probably anticipated it. I'm not talking about this week or this month. I'm talking in general. So if the stock market has anticipated these collapses, unless you have a crystal ball, unless you can accurately foretell the future, It's too late once we know that uh, the economy is in a bad way and it's time for people to think not about changing their exposure to the equity market, it's time for them to think about what they do for their new circumstances. And there's little doubt, for example, that um, although the elderly may feel themselves to be at risk currently, uh, that once we're back to more normal circumstances, the thing to think about is, is there a way in which... Uh, individuals could postpone their retirement, work a bit more, not work a bit less. And some may find that more enjoyable. What many Mm -hmm. people who I know are discovering is that there's more that they can do from home. Uh, And when Mm -hmm. there's more that you can do from home, that does suggest that there's uh, other sorts of opportunities that people will need to think about. Um, Another thing which they can think about is this, that almost all the people who are listening to this Uh, have had their foreign travel restrained and very recently completely eliminated. And they may be saying to themselves now they'd love a holiday. But I think that many people will have realized that uh, staying at home and cutting back on exotic travels will be very satisfactory, very rewarding, and we will learn more about our own country. Uh, the mm. desire to go on uh, long cruises in exotic places—I think that's that's gone. So people will also learn to change their behaviour for their to, to suit their circumstances, and yet we will be a little bit poorer in financial terms. But our tastes may be a little bit more modest now. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, we, we we may be slightly poorer, but that, as you suggest, that doesn't necessarily mean any 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 less happy. Maybe we'll discover. Uh, joys in in sort of simpler and cheaper things, but th- that's not good news for the economy, and 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 therefore not good news for the for, for for the markets, is it? If if you know there's going to be less demand for you know expensive exotic travel or or you know non essential luxury goods, for example.
1: Well, it's only uh, a matter of weeks. Since it was difficult for me when I went over from where I live in London to to, uh, Cambridge, which is uh, where where I'm based, it was difficult to get to one's office because roads were blocked by uh, people who were campaigning for improving the environment. And the claim was that it's all very well for old people to go flying off to exotic places, but the people who were uh, doing the Friday school strikes or um, joining Extinction Rebellion demonstrations we're talking about children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of uh, people who haven't yet been born. Mm. And so, yes, maybe some exotic holidays are going to disappear, but uh, the the world may be a better place for that. Uh, uh, there will be some environmentally damaging activities which get put to one side. I suppose if I was the chief executive of a um, company that, that does its business on uh, cruise ships, I... Wouldn't be thinking so much about uh, those activities. There's there's other things that such an individual would have on on her mind. But um, you know, we we have to worry about the losses to families uh, in the short term. Um, but moving beyond that, and for those who are not tinged by too much sadness, there will be uh, a different world and a world that might be better in some regards.
0: What about the increased tax burden, though, uh, Elroy? I mean, uh, investors appear to have been reassured by pledges from from governments around the world to protect jobs by supporting businesses financially and, you know, even paying uh, employees or most of employees' salaries. Um, but presumably, that will lead to, you know, a, a period of austerity, which will which will make the last one. Uh, look like a walk in the park. And again, that's, that's going to be bad for the economy and, and presumably bad for markets in the long term.
1: Yes, yeah, people talk about the very recent times, very recent times, when uh, Britain finally paid off its debts incurred when the country was bailed out after the Second World War. And so we just paid that off. We borrowed money. The United States bailed us out. Now we're in a world where there's borrowing, but there's nobody that we're borrowing from. It's not as though the United States is immune from all of this. It's got a bigger problem than China had. Uh, And so we're not borrowing it from particular parties. What we're doing is we are borrowing from our children and grandchildren. Uh, And so uh, they had already been complaining that uh, uh, their parents and grandparents had had the best of times. Um, They'll be complaining still more. Uh, but of course, this was uh, an event which we hadn't anticipated, and it wasn't because we were that greedy. But uh, yeah, life will be a little bit, a little bit tougher for young people. But then, if you go back a bit, uh, it, it used to be. Um, did, did you ever have a Saturday job or a vacation job? Uh, all the people I knew, I'm a little bit older than you, but they they all earned some money on the side. And yeah. uh, going forward, young people. Once they're college age or uh, um, want to take their year off, they're going to have to um, settle for something which is more hardworking.
0: Mm. We we mentioned your uh, book Triumph of the Optimists at, at the start, and and probably the, the most important takeaway from that for for those who haven't uh, read it is you know the importance of diversification um and the fact that you know if you are diversified you know generally speaking in the past um investors have been rewarded for for being patient but you know has, has diversification actually worked in the last few weeks i mean after all we've seen some some bonds falling you know at the same time as stocks i mean what what's going on there
1: Well, that's one part of the story. I mean, there there are times when uh, bonds and equities move together and times when they move in different directions. We had thought, if you go back uh, a couple of decades, I think we had thought that if interest rates go up, not only would bonds decline in value, um, but that equities would decline in value since equities are a claim on future cash flows, and you'd be discounting them at a larger rate. And then we moved into a period at which uh, the correlations between equities and bonds became rather different um, and have wandered around over time. Uh, So part of this is, of course, affected by the extent to which bonds come into existence from uh, QE and uh, other central bank initiatives. Uh, I think I should go back to the fundamental aspects of your question on diversification. And just run through the different elements of diversification, uh, but I'll tell you what we're going where I'm going to end up, and that is that it is still a very important free lunch. yeah, our historical perspective goes back to the uh, end of the nineteenth century, and if you go back to that time when people were buying equities, they would have chosen particular companies, and they probably would have been companies in their own country, and not infrequently companies which aren't near to them, people living in the Midlands of the United Kingdom, are uh, often being overweighted with uh, companies from yeah. the locality. You know, as we went through the last century, we had the emergence of mutual funds. Uh, and so there were two things that happened. As we progressed, first of all, there were more types of companies on the stock market, so you could diversify anyway. And secondly, mutual funds could do the job for you at a moderate cost. Uh, And then, once we uh, moved beyond that into the uh, later part of the last century, there was the opportunity for people to invest internationally, something which hadn't been possible in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, And nowadays, that can be done across the world. Uh, And the risks that you get of being in the wrong country, I illustrated that with exposure to Ireland at the onset of the global crisis. Those sorts of risks become optional. You can choose to overweight a particular country, but there's no real reason to do that. There are lots of low-cost investment vehicles which will give you exposure to thousands of companies around the world and will typically cost the investor less than if she were buying just a handful of companies in the mutual fund, because that would be an actively managed fund. And actively managed funds are more expensive than highly diversified passive funds. And then we get diversification across different asset classes. And so I think what's happened lately is people have realized that they should be diversified uh, across equities across bonds, um, and across other sorts of investments of which the most important for people uh, probably is real estate. Not too much exposure just to their home, uh, but uh, perhaps uh, not too little, not simply renting their own home. So cross-asset diversification is is important, diversification within the country, geographical diversification, and I don't think those opportunities have gone away at all.
0: So... I suppose the, the, the burning question that, that everyone wants answering is, you know, what should they do now? And of course, <laughs> the answer has to be, well, that depends on, I'm assuming you would say, uh, Roy, their, their, their age and their personal circumstances.
1: Well, the risk exposure depends on that. But I think uh, for many investors, what they want is alpha. Alpha is outperformance compared to the index. And I think that's become much more important than it was. Well, how do you get alpha? It's difficult to do it by spotting a manager who is so talented that he or she can beat the indexes. What you can do, an almost sure-fire method of uh, getting alpha, uh, is to have less leakage to uh, costs that you could avoid. And So I think one of the outcomes of this process is that we we are entering a world in which interest rates look as though they're not going to be creeping up at the rate we had thought. So the reward for uh, putting your money in the bank is going to remain low. The equity premium uh, may be similar to what it has been in the past. So the extra return from going to equities rather than holding cash um, may be sustained. But people's willingness to have heavy exposure to equities will surely be constrained for a long period. Investors have long memories. Uh, And so the way you generate alpha is just to pay less. And I think this is going to uh, result in people looking for low-cost solutions to their investment objectives. Uh, It's going to help not the handful of active managers that with hindsight outperformed, but it's going to provide further impetus for people to head towards uh, low-cost mechanized solutions that are not too labour intensive for the asset manager, uh, and enables them to deliver equity returns, which uh, will beat inflation and be substantial in relation to the minimal costs that uh, low cost investors experience.
0: But of course, as you know, at, at times like this, um, you know, fear sells. I, I think is a, is quite a, a well known expression on, on Wall Street, and there are lots of active funds out there claiming that you know you're better off in an active fund when markets are going down because at least in theory an active manager can protect you from from the worst of any future falls but as you and I know uh, it it doesn't usually work like that does it
1: well protecting you from falls requires um three things one is for the costs which I've already mentioned not to be excessive so let's put that to one side uh, and then it requires one to identify before the event uh, what kind of stocks to be buying. But I think what is also being sold is a capacity to determine when uh, one should be getting out of the equity market and going liquid. And uh, clearly, if you can tell when you ought to be getting out, that's uh, that would have been a really good thing. Uh, what people will have to look at is whether um, having uh, got a very – handy set of observations, a laboratory, if you like, uh, whether there's much evidence that professional investment managers saw this coming and got out. I have no doubt that a few did, but um, I'd be quite surprised if you found that uh, there were uh, many managers who, for example, um, halved their equity exposure uh, in January and February as they could see what the dangers were. Uh, I I do remember flying into London at the time of the October 87 crash. Uh, So I was coming in from Geneva and it was uh, quite surreal because looking out of the window from the plane, uh, what one saw was the trees everywhere having been blown over by the storm, which coincided with the uh, collapse of the stock market. I landed. I was making sure that I was in time for an investment committee meeting for the endowment of London University, which uh, I was involved with um, uh, in a trustee-like capacity. Uh, We had our meeting at the uh, offices of the investment manager. The market was collapsing as we were there, and we didn't know it, Um, that people were wandering in and out, coming in for a few minutes, heading out for a few minutes. Somebody else would come in, somebody else would go out. But uh, gradually, we realized what was going on. The market was collapsing. And by the end of the day, they'd done no trades at all. It's very, very difficult. You, know, you can see what's happening. You know that it, you, you, if you take a move, it could go wrong. Uh, and that was a quite commonplace experience. I just happened to, uh, to, to, to see that at first hand. Um, it's very difficult to say, well, I'll take a price for selling out. It's much worse than I could have had half an hour ago. And you see prices are continuing to fall uh so uh it's tough and i i uh, I think market timing on behalf of the investor is something that you really don't want them to do uh They'll be no better than than the amateur investor and um it's what you want is uh, um an investment house that will buy for the long term and uh stick with their judgments. A passive investor will buy for the long term buying lots of everything. An active investor who just believes in particular sorts of themes will have certain sorts of tilts and that may be more satisfactory than um, looking to them to anticipate a stock market collapse before it's upon them.
0: Well, it, it's, a, it's a bit early to say, but the initial figures that I've seen uh, quoted uh, a couple of days ago were that uh, around 80% of uh, UK-focused active managers um, fell further than the index after costs uh, over the last few weeks. So, you know, clearly, you know, they had their chance. They've been hoping for more volatility, and they've had it. That was their chance, and and so far, it seems that, that they haven't covered themselves in glory. And and even more
1: so with with hedge funds. Uh, I I understand. No, I've seen the figures for hedge funds, and that. <laughs> That's you know that that that's a different clientele for the one we've been talking about so far. Um, people must have thought that they were being quite clever with exposure to hedge funds, and they turned out to be directional. But then trading desks also are ones where uh, traders and de- dealers ought, in principle, to be balancing their exposure to the market. But when the market's very volatile, you can be caught out by being long, that is, having positive exposure to the market as it falls or the other way around being short and it goes up uh it's a stressful time for professionals this one and uh, there are a few who've got it right and who've called this correctly just as they have been in past events in history uh, but uh it's it's a challenging job so just
0: just one final question for 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 investors with say at least 10 years until retirement um and for those who you know don't believe that the that the end of the world is nigh, uh, you would suggest, I, I assume, a thoroughly diversified portfolio, uh, including different asset classes, um, but making particular use of, of of low cost index funds, and just keeping it simple and,
1: and holding for the long term. Is, is that right? Well, I think that's right. But people who say that they're looking 10 years ahead, maybe people who have the good fortune to have sufficient wealth that they don't expect uh, that they will have spent all of their money either in 10 years or at the end of their lives. So they may have a bequest motive. They may want to leave money perhaps to children, perhaps to something else, charities or whatever. And those children, those charities, and so forth, will themselves have a longer term perspective. So Mm. um, I don't think 10 years is enough because, certainly, over 10 years, the stock market isn't a sure thing. Mm. But um, uh, if a proportion, even a substantial proportion, is at risk, then uh, I think as long as the individual has the sort of savings, to anticipate that they will hold on to this for a position that's significantly into double digit years, then they can afford to take much more risk. Somebody who's thinking only five years ahead, and remember, that's often at the bottom of a mutual fund advert, that you should have yeah. a five-year horizon. Um, yeah. That may hurt just too much.
0: And, and, and drip feed money into the markets every every month, you would say?
1: Well, I think so, but I think the rate at which people feel comfortable with drip feeding now um, will be smaller because uh, they're they're going to have a smaller income from their savings that that is coming in. So uh, to the extent that there's spare money for those who are not uh, caught out by uh, uh, issues to do with employments or the business that they run, yes, uh, but what I think we really have to be sure about is not – trying to withdraw when the markets are down and not trying to time exposure, not concluding that they missed what was happening this time, but they'll get it right in terms of entering or exiting the market uh, over the future. So I think at least keeping confidence in the market, um, sticking with it, uh, taking a long-term perspective is good, foreseeing changes in the market, anticipating uh, opportunities. Um, that is something which I would advise against.
0: Elroy Dimson, that's all extremely helpful. Thank you so much for your time, um, and
1: uh, keep keep well and uh, keep safe. And uh, I hope that son of yours turns out to have made just the right investments. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. I hope so.
0: You've been listening to a special edition of the Tebby Podcast, brought to you by Regis Media. I'm Robin Powell and I've been interviewing Professor Elroy Dimson. Now, if you'd like to hear Professor Dimson expand on some of the themes we've discussed in this podcast and perhaps ask him a question of your own, here is your chance. He's going to be taking part in a one-off live webinar at 11am UK time, that 11am British summer time on Tuesday the 7th of April. Tuesday the 7th of April. This free event is being organised by Global Systematic Investors. If you'd like to join us, there'll be details on the evidence-based investor we shall find at evidenceinvestor.com. We'll also be putting them on the Global Systematic Investors website, the URL for which is gsillp.com. That's gsillp.com. Alternatively, check my Twitter feed, that's at Robin J. Powell, or the GSI Twitter feed, that's at gsi llp. But don't delay, places are limited and are being made available on a strictly first-come, first-served basis. Thank you again to Professor Elroy Dimson and to you for listening. Goodbye.